You're listening to The Omni Show, where we connect with the amazing community surrounding the Omni Group's award-winning products. My name's Andrew J. Mason, and today we learn how Dr. Matthew Kamisic uses OmniGraffle. Well, welcome everybody to this episode of The Omni Show. My name's Andrew J. Mason, and today we are beyond thrilled to be able to have Dr. Matthew Kamisic with us. He's a cognitive neuroscientist doing his second postdoc at 23andMe, and he's researching various markers of Parkinson's disease and using OmniGraffle every day in his work. Dr. Matthew, we are thrilled to have you with us. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, Dr. Matthew, I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about how you ended up where you are. This is such a really specific career path, cognitive neuroscientist at 23andMe. So maybe break down how you got to 23andMe and then also how you ended up in your particular field of study, Parkinson's disease. That's actually fascinating. Sure. Yeah. I love to talk about this. I speak sometimes to undergraduate students who were in my position several years ago. And, you know, they're trying to make a decision in their career path. And sometimes it helps hearing where I came from. So I went to college, a university called Loyola University of Chicago, to become a medical doctor. I thought I was going to be a pediatrician since I was in, about in fifth grade. But while I was at doing my undergraduate education, I discovered research. I was told that starting in a research lab, being involved in the process of running experiments and analyzing data makes you a really good candidate for medical school. So as soon as I got into Loyola, I tried to find any opportunity I could into research labs. And it wasn't until my junior year, really, where I really found a cool cognitive neuroscience lab that was studying human analogical reasoning and recording brain waves at the same time, which I thought was super cool. And so I was doing my best to take all the classes and study for the tests that were, you know, were needed to go to medical school. But I found myself just really wanting to play with data, run experiments, come up with new ideas on how to test the human mind, how to study it. And I was just finding myself just staying up really late working on data analysis projects and analyzing data to the point where I was like, man, I should probably start studying. And then I started to make the realization after, you know, just, you know, wanting to play around with data all the time that, hey, maybe I should pursue this as a career. So I had to make the sort of change into, you know, maybe medicine isn't the right path for me. Maybe it's uh, studying the human brain. And so I made a decision there to stop pursuing medicine and going into cognitive neuroscience programs. And so I then started applying to PhD programs that do similar research that I was interested in. And then, yeah, it took me down this crazy uh, career path where I've actually been really fortunate to study a variety of different things. I've studied uh, traumatic brain injuries. I've studied how we derive meaning from reading of sentences, also recording brain waves at the same time. After that, I studied chronic pelvic pain and how menstrual pain in women can convey elevated risk for chronic pelvic pain and specifically sensory processing. So how we process visual information, auditory information, our visceral information. So those things from our bladder and how that all that kind of pain processing combines into one to kind of conveys like a pain response or perhaps a chronic pain response later in life. And then now I decided to make another kind of change in my research trajectory and study genetics, which I have no background in, which has been great at 23andMe to get this kind of experience. And as well as Parkinson's disease, which is the number one growing uh, neurodegenerative disease in the world. I've taken a crazy career path, but throughout it's been just fantastic. 
I'm really excited to dive into some of the research and your findings uh, in 23andMe or in, in past postdoc studies. I'd also like to know if you have any recollection at all of first interactions with the Omni Group or OmniGraffle. Do you recall how it entered your world or showed up in your space? Yeah. So, so I went to graduate school at the University of Texas at Dallas. And when I was studying there for the cognitive neuroscience program, the lab that I started working in, they were using OmniGraffle to create their stimuli for their experiments. And so they were interested in how humans do analogical reasoning. So finding the similarities between differences of things. And when they were making the stimuli for that project, they were using all of it in OmniGraffle, which was this new program for me. I was not even a Mac user when I started graduate school. They had these big iMacs in the lab and they had OmniGraffle on there. And that's what they were using to create the visual stimuli for the project. So usually what we do is we use OmniGraffle to create the stimulus and then we'd save it out as either like a PNG or JPEG file. And then we would fire that up into another program, which um, human participants, they would come into the lab and look at these images and provide responses for us. And so OmniGraffle, that was my first sort of introduction into it. We were using it for one project. And then afterwards, after we're done with that project, I kept on gravitating back towards it because I was like, oh, I could just easily do this in OmniGraffle really quick. And that's basically how I got introduced into the software. Wow. Okay. So OmniGraffle used to create the stimuli in clinical studies that <laughs> I've heard a lot of use cases. That's the first use case I've heard of that. Uh, yeah. Fantastic. Right. What other spaces or use cases have you seen OmniGraffle used for? Yeah, I don't know many other people outside of my research circle that use OmniGraffle. So I'm probably just really specific about the use cases here. But what I've noticed it being used for is mainly for the development of scientific posters. So academic posters, when you go to a conference, you want to present your data to the public or those that go to the conference. And creating a poster in OmniGraffle is great because you get to specify the dimensions of the paper that you want to print it on. So usually we print it on like 42 inches by 54 inches, you know, these big kind of poster boards. And so that's one use case for it, which is academic posters. Another one is for figures for manuscripts. So these could be either visual depictions of the protocol. So what a participant will see when they come into the lab, when they're participating in the cognitive neuroscience experiments. I've also seen it used for depictions of clinical trial progress. Let's say you have a group of eligible participants for a clinical trial. You know, you enroll this many, and then from there, this many are eligible, and, and then they go into various arms. Usually that's called a consort diagram. I've seen OmniGraffle used for that. As for me, I, I typically use OmniGraffle for the development of manuscript figures. So when we're writing up our paper for publication from our science experiments, we'll go ahead and develop those images and those figures for data visualization in OmniGraffle because of its really great export tools and just manipulation within the program itself for saving out figures. And then almost all of my scientific publications have figures that have been finalized in OmniGraffle and then eventually published. 
That's really cool, Dr. Matthew. Thank you for sharing that. I would love for you to share some of, and it's not necessarily OmniGraphle related per se, but what are you finding in your research in Parkinson's with, with 23andMe? What are some of the things that have showed up for you that you deem, hey, this is interesting. We should pay attention to this. Yeah. Unfortunately, I don't think I can talk much about the 23andMe results yet because they're unpublished. But if I could talk about perhaps some of my previous published work, I could talk about that. How does that sound? Yes, that would be amazing. Okay, yeah, sure. So in my previous postdoc, we were really interested in visceral pain, including menstrual pain and bladder pain, and how that conveys greater risk for development of chronic pelvic pain, increased pelvic pain long term. So we're talking about maybe one to five years after their, after their study visit. What we were seeing there, and this is from a lab, uh, Dr. Kevin Hellman and Dr. Frank Tu's lab in Evanston Hospital in Illinois, they were basically seeing that if you have an increased sensitivity to light, increased sensitivity to sound, you have elevated menstrual pain, you have elevated bladder pain, you have elevated sensitivity to touch around your body, all of these sort of predict an increase in chronic pelvic pain later. So as participants would rate their pelvic pain a year later, two years later, up to five years later, we would see that initial sort of sensitivity at their baseline visit was predictive of their pain even four years later. So it sort of suggests that there's like this overall central sensitivity measurement or metric that we could use to really predict somebody's future pain. And um, this was actually more predictive than their pelvic pain at their baseline which I found really interesting that something else was predicting their pain versus just asking them how much pain are you in right now? Because usually how much pain you're in right now is going to be predictive of your future pain. That's sort of what we were finding in our in my previous postdoc, which is uh, all those results are just published. I just recently published a paper in April this year in the journal called Pain, which people can read about that if they're interested. What advice might you have for somebody who possibly recognizes you as a leader in the space of data visualization and they want to get started with data visualization in some way, but they're just not sure what that first great step might be? Where would you direct somebody who had that kind of a desire? Yeah, that's a good question. I think that what really got me interested in data visualization was reading the works of Edward Tuft. I read some of his books on data visualization and just really fell in love with the idea of like data visualization needs to be really clear, needs to be concise, you need to convey a lot of information in a small space. Just make it really easy for the reader to understand what you're trying to say. And then actually being cognizant and aware of developing good figures, good data visualization for your audience. I think that's enough right there just to get you really thinking about okay, well, I need to create this figure and how is the best way to do it? And by reading those works and maybe playing around in Omnigraph a little bit, you get a sense of, okay, is this clear or is this not clear? Getting feedback from other people is also really important. So showing this figure to somebody and saying, hey, like, what do you think I'm trying to convey here? And taking that feedback seriously, because I think, at least for my use case, whenever I'm developing data visualizations for publication, when somebody's reading your paper, the first thing they're going to go to is the figures, right? They're going to try to understand things in a visual way rather than reading all this scientific text and jargon that is being used. And so if you can create very clear data visualizations and infographics 
and makes things a lot easier on the audience. And so I guess the number one tip I have is to be empathetic for your audience. And if someone's not understanding your figure right away, it's probably a good idea to make some changes to it. So it's kind of it's constantly like a work of art. Like I, I see a figure kind of like a slab of marble. You're just constantly molding it and molding it and molding it until the point where you get it to be really crystal clear to your audience. Hmm. Another thing that I would probably have to suggest for beginners is I guess how I sort of got started in it was I watched a few YouTube videos of people doing projects in OmniGraffle and showing the ropes. And, you know, that's how I kind of got familiar with the software in the beginning. But I think the best piece of advice I would have for somebody is throw yourself into it, have a project in mind and try to accomplish that. And most things are possible in OmniGraffle. Reading the forums whenever I got stuck or I didn't know if something was possible then I would just like search the forums, OmniGraffle's website, and I would find a lot of cool tips from people that are trying to solve those problems. It's come in handy for me a lot. I'm just making a lot of different diagrams. And also I've used it for mind mapping. When I would start to learn about a new topic, I would take a text box in OmniGraffle and put like the concept there and then have arrows and diagrams going all different directions to different concepts that I'd be researching and like sort of just get my thoughts on the paper and how they sort of connect with each other. Sort of like a crazy detective having strings connecting pictures all over the place, but it's nice because it's digital and you can move them around and, and the arrows kind of connect the boxes together and they're, and, you know, fixed in that way. As you were sharing that, this is something that just showed up. I'm curious about what indicators you use to decide what form of visualization data should take? So when you see information or a pattern emerge or some, some way you know, okay, this needs to be presented visually, is it more of an art versus science like you mentioned? Or are there key things that you look for to say, hey, this is a bar chart versus this is a line graph or, or whatever, but there's some way that you know how data should show up. Can you speak to what you use to make that decision? Yeah, that yeah, that's a really good question. I think a lot of it is from experience and just thinking about what kind of what's the best way to display the data. I do remember from graduate school, one of my first classes I ever took was in statistics, taught by Dr. Robert Ackerman at the University of Texas at Dallas. And I had this moment where everything I thought I knew about making figures and scientific publications was wrong <laughs> because he he basically was like okay so here is a you know here are some data you want to plot let's say like the mean accuracies from some kind of task from a group of individuals and so you know a lot of us would immediately go to the bar chart right you see these bars you see that one group has more accuracy than the other one on average and then you put some sort of error bars on there whether it's you know, a 95% confidence interval or whether it's a standard error, the mean or something like that. And he went to explain that the bar chart, just by having physical bars on the chart, that sort of signifies that that's like a very fixed value, right? It's a plateau, like it's, it's not moving, it's very fixed, right? Whereas if you were to replace those bars with a point, right? It allows the reader to infer that perhaps that value is just not just a fixed value, but we just took a sample of, let's say, 20 individuals, they gave their response, and this is what we estimated. But those that study the central limit theorem know that that estimate is going to change with the population, and that's why we have an error to it. And so subtle changes like that made me think that, oh, like 
what we are showing with our data is you're suggesting subtleties to the reader. And so having that in mind while you create your figures, I think is really important. Hmm. And, and I think uh, our heart here really is to be help people be productive uh, by learning from us through uh, the positive aspects and maybe some of the aspects where it's like, I, I, if I had this to do over again, I would do it differently. Is there anything that you can see from your career track thus far that maybe it's not a failure, but it's something that I would just skip that slice and you might be better served just not going in that direction or doing that thing or thinking in that way. Is there anything that really fits that criteria for you that maybe would be instructional for others? Hmm, something that really accelerated my workflow I don't think I've talked about this yet, but like my workflow is basically I will use a statistical programming language called R to analyze the data and create visualizations. And from there, what I would do is I would take that information and put it into OmniGraphle, where I would do small tweaks here and there to make the figure really just pop and really convey a lot more information to the audience than it would just coming straight out of R. And the package I use to do that in R is called ggplot2. And so ggplot2, what I used to do was I would take that image and I would save it out as a JPEG or a PNG. And then I'd pop that into OmniGraphle where I would make some adjustments to it from there. But what really propelled me forward in terms of like making my work a little bit faster, a little bit more amenable to changes was to not worry about getting the figure 100% correct in ggplot, which is the package in R that I was talking about, but getting that figure in a state of like, okay, this is really almost at its final point, but there's some changes that I want to make an OmniGraphle to it to really just convey some more information and saving that out as an SVG file. And then putting that into OmniGraphle allows you to have a lot more flexibility with the program. You can make a lot more minute changes in there. And if you were to, I guess, make some additional changes to the overall figure, right, you do have to go back into R and, and make those changes. But in general, I have acquired a lot of feedback at that time from other people. I've gone through several iterations within the software program. And so by the time it gets to OmniGraphle, it's, it's in a pretty good state. And so from OmniGraphle, I really use it to make the finishing touches and to add some additional things that it's a little bit harder to do in R. It's a lot more time consuming than I would just throw it into OmniGraphle to make that job a little bit more efficient. Uh, I guess that was kind of the light bulb moment for me. It's like, okay, I should be doing this in a different way. And that really made me more efficient. So that file saving from SVG allows you to stay within the OmniGraphle environment versus having saved the file as a rasterized something and then it's just frozen in, in place. When you put it into OmniGraphle, you are able to edit every individual point. And I know this is highly niche to people who use R as their programming language and they're saving things out. But I think this, it also works for other things too that I found that are saved in SVG format. If you put them into OmniGraphle, you can edit every little minute detail within that, within that figure and you can really just make it your own. And so that's what I really love about it because you have just so much control over what you're doing. And then when you go to save it out, you can save it out into different file formats that you want. And for me, I guess for academic publishing, it's really important to have those figures in a very crystal clear, high DPI image. So when they go into print, they print really nicely and they're not blurry. 
And so I guess that's like another part of my workflow that I really appreciate that you can control those aspects. Anything that I have to do with figures or images, whether it's for just something really easy, maybe like cropping an image, I'll, instead of going into other programs, I'll just use OmniGraffle because there's just so much that you can do in there. I love it. Thank you so much for your time, Dr. Matthew, and just spending it, just sharing with us what you're able to accomplish using the software, but also just kind of uh, giving us some tips about how to best visualize data. I think that's really cool. Uh, how can folks connect with you and what you're up to and, and kind of stay within your orbit if they're interested in finding out more about what you're up to? Yeah, I have a website. People can go on there to see all my publications and all my posters and some of my blog posts that I'm writing. So if you can go to mattkamisic.com, that's where you can find me. Um, I'm also on LinkedIn. That's a platform that I, I use quite often. So you can find me there as well as on Twitter as well. So those are my kind of my main platforms that I'm using, but my website will have links to my publications in which I've used OmniGraffle to create the figures for. And some of my blog posts actually feature um, figures that I've made and polished up in OmniGraffle. That's perfect. Thank you so much, Dr. Matthew. No, thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Hey, and thank all of you for listening today too. You can find us on Mastodon at The Omni Show at omnigroup.com. You can also find out everything that's happening with the Omni Group at omnigroup.com slash blog. Yeah.